0: Welcome back, you Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and we are in week number 14. And this week, we're going to cover 1 Samuel chapter 16 through 2 Samuel chapter 7. And as we begin this week, I want to let you know that you've hit a milestone. If you are up to date with your reading, you are finished with week 13 and entering week 14, which means you're a quarter, 25% of the way to the finish line. Only three-quarters of the Bible left to read. So you're almost there, so keep plugging on each and every day as you read your scriptures and be encouraged. You're three-quarters of the way there. Now, last time we had left off, Saul had been rejected as king because of his transgression. Now, it might be good for us to understand a little bit of chronology here. Saul became king in 1 Samuel chapter 10 or chapter 11, and he would rule for 40 years. However, the first 20 years of his reign is roughly silent. So 20 years into his reign is when he goes into battle against the Philistines and the Amalekites in chapters 13, 14, and 15. This means that by the time Saul meets David, Saul had been reigning for about 25 years. And David only came to Saul's attention after the Lord sends Samuel to Bethlehem to select the new king. And this is where chapter 16 of 1 Samuel picks up. You might know the story well. Jesse proudly parades his sons before Samuel by descending age until only David was left, who was at this time out tending the sheep. And David is brought to Samuel, and God immediately tells Samuel that this is the one. David is anointed right in front of all of his brothers, and God's Spirit resting on him. Meanwhile, God's Spirit leaves Saul. Because God's Spirit leaves Saul, Saul becomes emotionally unstable. He becomes depressed and looking for ways to soothe his soul. And one of those ways was through music. And that music came from the gifted fingers of none other than David himself. Now, it's obvious that Saul's rejection did not mean his immediate removal and end of his reign. War continued, especially with the Philistines. And the most famous battle of David and Goliath occurs in the next chapter, in chapter 17. Now, I'm hoping that you know most of the story. If you don't, I won't ruin it for you. But some people say that David was a teenager when he faced Goliath. I like to think that he was right at 20 years old. That's the youngest age that a man was allowed to serve in Israel's military. And because of David's defeat of Goliath, he was enlisted into the king's service. So in chapter 18, David forms a forever friendship with Jonathan, who is Saul's son. And David is celebrated as the war hero. The crowds sing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, this singing didn't sit well with Saul, who tried to kill David on numerous occasions. Now, earlier in chapter 17, Saul had promised to give his daughter in marriage to whomever could defeat Goliath. And the time had come for him to make good on his promise. And so, Michael is offered as a wife to David. However, Saul wanted a favor of a military sort from David first. David agreed and does what Saul asks. I think Saul was secretly hoping that this task would kill David, but it doesn't because David comes back victorious and his actions elevated him to an even higher status in the eyes of the Israelites. Now finally, in chapter 19, Saul openly discloses his intention to get rid of David. The pressure of this open decree becomes too great for David and he has to leave Gibeah and find refuge somewhere else from Saul. Knowing that he would be safe with Samuel, David makes his way there, but word gets to Saul of David's location and he sends men's there, men there to capture him. However, what happens is far from ordinary. Saul will send three different sets of messengers to capture David, but all three sets of messengers end up serving God by prophesying rather than the king. Even Saul himself went to capture David and ended up prophesying or ended up serving God. God's spirit overruled the authority of the king. God rescued David not by any human intermediary, but directly by his own power. And Saul drove himself to the brink of insanity by refusing to submit to God who still exercised sovereign control over him. Now, if we think back to chapter 10, one of the signs confirming Saul's election as king had been his participation in the prophesying of the band of prophets, chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. And now this same type of sign serves only to confirm his rejection by God. So three times in chapter 19 alone, David is delivered by God. God preserved his anointing by using natural and supernatural means. Now, since Christians are anointed by God, 1 John chapter 2. This record of how God preserves his anointed should provide encouragement to us who are reading this as well. Now on to chapter 20, where one last attempt to reconcile David and Saul is made by Jonathan. Because Saul refused to repent, his heart was hardened. Walking with God can sometimes be confusing. You realize that, don't you? Some people will will oppose us simply because we want to do God's will and their antagonism is not the result of our sinfulness, but of theirs. And so Jonathan assures David that he has done nothing wrong. But nonetheless, they together develop a strategy to help David find out if Saul was still out to kill him. The next day was a festival day, where David's presence was required, and Saul's reaction to David's absence at this festival would prove to be the sign that Jonathan needed to confirm whether his father was still angry or not. So David's absence at the festival was relayed to Saul by his son Jonathan, and with great rage, Saul turned on Jonathan, reminding him that unless David died, the throne would be never handed to him. Paul then punctuated his wrath by trying to kill Jonathan with a spear, the same way he tried to kill David, by the way. Jonathan's conclusion to his father's anger is unmistakable, and with great sorrow following through, he gives David the sign that Saul's anger was irreparable. And so David and Jonathan would meet one more time, and sadly, they would part ways, knowing that things would never be the same again. Cut off from his friends and family, David had to fend for himself, and this leads us into chapter 21. Now, from a larger perspective, chapters 21 through 31 of First Samuel might be best termed as David, as fugitive. Several of the Psalms find their backgrounds in these chapters. You can look at them on your own, but I've listed a few here. Psalm 18, 34, 52, 54, 56, 57, 63, 124, or 138. Now, in the first part of chapter 21, David flees to Nob, where the high priest Abimelech was living. It is significant that David's first place to find refuge was among God's priests representatives on earth, and he wanted to get help from the Lord through them as he had done in the past. And so as David comes to Abimelech, the text tells us that Abimelech was extremely nervous. Had he come on Saul's orders to kill this priest or the other priests? Remember that David was essentially Saul's general, and as such, he would come with men and with full authority from the king wherever he went. However, David neglected to tell Abimelech what had just happened to him, and David's needs became official needs of the king. He wanted Abimelech to think that Saul had sent him. This was deception on David's part, no doubt, a lack of faith in God's ability, no doubt. And David does make some mistakes in his early years. He's not perfect. He seems to have handled himself better as he matures, though. God, no doubt, was training him for future service as king. Well, Abimelech complies with David's orders. By the way, verse 7 about Doeg the Edomite will come into play later on into chapter 22, so we'll skip that. But the next part of chapter 21, David flees to Gath. Now here's a question. Why does David seek refuge with Goliath's sword in that giant's hometown? Strange, isn't it? As Chuck Swindoll once said, David would have been as conspicuous in Gath as Dolly Parton would be in a convent. Those were his words, Chuck Swindoll's, not mine. But needless to say, the Philistines took David's presence as a threat. And so David pretended to be insane to escape. And it was the superstitious belief that it was bad luck to kill a madman, and so they let him go. By the way, Psalm 56 and Psalm 34 were written by David before and after his time in Gath. So in chapter 22, David continues life on the run. He comes to Adullam, a mile or so from where he had stood on the battlefield and killed Goliath years earlier. And before long, others had joined him at Adullam, and he had a small army of about 400 men, men who were mainly discontented with Saul's government. Knowing that his family was in danger of Saul's wrath, he takes them to Moab, where his great-grandmother Ruth was from. Maybe hoping to secure the help of the Moabites if Saul's wrath led to a full-scale war, this could have been the reason why he goes to Moab. Next, the prophet Gad tells David to find a hiding place in the forest of Herath. Meanwhile, as David is in hiding, Saul finds out from, here's the fellow we talked about earlier, Doag the Edomite, that Abimelech had helped David. And so he orders the priest and his subordinates to be put to death. And the city of Nob was also destroyed. However, one man named Abathar escaped the massacre to tell David. David then swears to make Abathar his priest, a role that would eventually lead to that of high priest in David's rule as king later on. By the way, Abathar was in the line of Eli, so that priesthood would stay intact. Psalm 52 gives insights into how David felt during this incident in chapter 22. Now in chapter 23, the incident with the slaying of the priests seems to have altered David's strategy. Because once he hears about the Philistines' attack near Hebron, he decides to go on the offensive, and he consults with Abathar first. The text tells us that four times he asked the Lord if he should go and help, knowing that Saul was also out for his life. Here's the amazing thing about David and what truly makes him shine at times. David was not just defending himself during this period of his life. He was also aggressively carrying out the will of God by defeating Israel's enemies as the Lord's servant. David was playing both offense and defense simultaneously, and we often today have problems just doing one of these, but David was doing both. David received guidance again from the Lord that they needed to leave before Saul's men get to Keilah, and so David flees to the wilderness of Ziph. However, the Ziphites thought that they would be better off if they informed Saul of David's presence in the area. And before Saul could make it to Ziph, David flees again to the desert area outside Hebron. And Saul again gives him chase. But at the last minute, Saul is pulled away to deal with a Philistine invasion. And so David uses this time wisely to find more secure of a place. And he sets out for the Dead Sea, finding the area of En Gedi with its many cliffside caves. David's new place of hiding was not secret for long, as Saul finds out in chapter 24. So, while David and his men were hiding away in a cave, Saul goes into that very cave that David is in to use the restroom. Being put in this vulnerable position, David's men believe that this was a sign from God whereby he could finally free himself from Saul, his enemy. However, David was wise enough to know that killing Saul was not part of God's will. Instead, As Saul exited the cave, David spoke up and explained to Saul what happened, and the proof that he was telling the truth was the fact that David had taken part of the the king's garment. It's at this interchange of words between David and Saul where Saul, at least at this point, seems to come to a place of repentance. There's no more powerful tribute than one that comes from an adversary. Saul even called upon the Lord to reward David for his righteous actions. Saul realized that David's succession to the throne was inevitable. It was God's plan, and Saul's only concern at this moment was to ensure that his descendants would be treated with mercy. The reason for this request was commonplace in the ancient Near East. When a new king came to power, one that didn't have any familial ties to the previous one, he would often kill off the previous king's descendants, lest they find a way to take back the throne from the new king. David promises not to cut off Saul's descendants, and David will show them mercy. And he does stay true to his word, as we will note later on. After a brief note about Samuel's death in chapter 25, David and his men are seeking some water and bread. And they come to the house of Nabal, who refused to give them any type of sustenance. Enraged at Nabal's lack of gratitude and hospitality, David urges his men to attack Nabal. However, the act is averted by Nabal's wife, Abigail. She provided for David and his men what her husband had refused and saved the life of her husband as a result. And so David responds to Abigail with deep gratitude because of her wisdom in preventing what surely would have been a massacre. When Abigail returns home to tell her husband what she had done for David, the very thought of it seems to have given Nabal a heart attack, which he dies from. Now deeply impressed with Abigail, David takes her as his wife, but he already had a wife named Michael. David, while he is called a man after God's own heart, is not a perfect man. There is no biblical sanction for polygamy. This act by David merely reflects that he, the future king, was accommodating to the pagan culture around him. By the way, the same words sent and took her appear here in verse 40 concerning Abigail, and these same words also occur in the account of David's affair with Bathsheba later on we see here the seed problem in David's life that bore bitter fruit later on in his adultery with Bathsheba. Now, moving on to chapter 26, which is similar to chapter 24, Saul is still pursuing after David. And when Saul and his army are sleeping and he David and his nephew, Abishai, go on the offensive and penetrate through the enemy ranks to a sleeping Saul. David takes his spear and his water bottle, and once he is at a safe distance, he calls out to Saul and to Abner, his general. Perhaps now, for the first time, Saul was forced to confess that God had his hand on David and he would be the next king. But personal ambition and private vengeance seems endemic to human nature, even among us as believers. David taught by example that God alone has the right to promote and demote. Still not an optimist, though, David is not convinced by Saul's words and goes for a second time into Philistine territory. He makes a pact with the Philistines. It seems that David's faith in God's ability to keep him safe, it goes back and forth. From the hilltop to the valley, it seems to go back and forth. But being strategic, David uses his opportunity as a military leader for the Philistines to defeat and annihilate the common enemies of Israel and the Philistines that live to Israel's southwest. And so David walked this very thin line, convincing the Philistines that his victories were for the welfare of the Philistines and the detriment of Israel. But now as you move into chapter 28, David is digging himself into a deeper hole as he is asked to fight against Israel. As the Philistines prepare for battle. Now, meanwhile, the scene shifts back to Saul and his consultation with the witch from Endor. Some texts call this witch uh, a medium or a spirit. And the Mosaic law prescribed death for mediums and spirits because God promised to give his people all the information that he wanted them to have about the future through the prophets. That's in Deuteronomy 18. So it was unwise, dangerous, and forbidden for them to seek more information from these other sources. Saul consults these sources because he was worried about the upcoming battle, and it seemed that the spirits or this medium would not have cooperated with Saul if she knew his identity. Now, there are a lot of opinions as to what exactly happened here in the text, and I'm not going to go through all those, but what's more important is the bigger picture. Saul could not get guidance from God because God had ceased giving his rebellious servant directions. People sometimes cannot get guidance from God because they have been unwilling to listen to God and obey him. He stopped speaking to them. In the case of Saul, Saul then tried to get guidance from elsewhere. And God graciously provided it from elsewhere in the form of a final warning. But even then, Saul disregarded that warning as well as the preceding chapters show. Now in chapter 29, David and his men are proceeding into battle along with the Philistines, all against the Israelites. So David here in league with the Philistines, they're getting ready to go up against the Israelites, but the Philistine commanders are uncertain that David will remain loyal to them in the midst of a war. So they send David and his men back to Philistia and thus David and his men are prevented providentially, I might add, from going into battle against Israel. In chapter 30, as David returns to Ziklag, he finds out that the Amalekites had destroyed the city, and he immediately goes to the Lord for help. The Lord enables David and his men to defeat the Amalekites, and David's wise leadership is demonstrated in this chapter with qualities of kindness, faith, decisiveness, fairness, and generosity. And the scene shifts back, shifts back to Saul in chapter 31, where he dies on the battlefield. So 1 Samuel ends with Saul's death and 2 Samuel picks right up, and it kind of overlaps a little bit here. So in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we're informed of the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. David, who who had openly played and sung soothing music in the times of Saul's madness, composes a lament to express his and Israel's sorrow at the death of Saul and his sons. Its title is called Song of the Bow, and you can read it there in chapter 1. In chapter 2, Abner Installs Saul's son Ishbosheth over Israel while David rules over Judah. And for seven years the kingdom of Israel is split in this fashion until a decision is made to settle the matter with a contest of champions. David's forces win the contest and Abner is forced to retreat. But in doing so, David's nephews are not content with the outcome. Ashael, one of David's nephews, gives chase to Abner and is killed in process by Abner's spear. So in chapter 3, Joab, which is Ashael's brother, wants to take revenge on what Abner has done. At this time, David's house continues to get stronger and stronger, while Saul's house continues to get weaker and weaker. And this causes Abner to come to the realization that he is on the losing side, and therefore starts to direct people to follow David from now on. Abner's change of heart puts him into a vulnerable position, a position that Joab takes advantage of, and he kills him because Abner had killed his brother Ashael in chapter four of Second Samuel. Ishbosheth dies, and now David assumes full leadership of Israel in chapter five, and he sets up Jerusalem as his capital city, pushing out the Jebusites. In chapter 6, David retrieves the ark and brings it to Jerusalem to be put in the tabernacle that David had made for it. And as you move into chapter 7, we find that David wants to build a temple for God to dwell in permanently, but David is not permitted to do it. His son Solomon will be the one permitted to do it. However, God does make a significant promise to David, and it is what is termed the Davidic covenant, and you find that here in chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is probably the most important chapter in 2 Samuel. Some would say in most of the Old Testament. The Davidic covenant, what we're talking about here, is really an outgrowth of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember that God promised way back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham three elements, three things that go to the covenant, land, descendants, and blessing. Well, the Davidic covenant deals with the descendants portion of the Abrahamic covenant. And furthermore, God's provision for leadership for those descendants. So in Deuteronomy 30, God explained the land aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. And in Jeremiah 31, God will explain the blessings attached to the Abrahamic covenant. But right here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're talking about the Davidic covenant, and we're talking about the descendants portion. So with David... Excuse me. With the Davidic covenant, there are three elements to it that relate to David's descendants. First, God promised David a dynasty. This means that his line would never be cut off. Up until this time, there had been no dynasty in Israel, but now, through David, there would be one. This does not mean that the dynasty, the dynasty rule, would um, would go on without interruption, because we know it does get interrupted because of the exile. Second, God promised David a throne. This means that the right to rule would always belong to David's line. This is why the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 is specific to show how Jesus comes from the line of David. Third, God promised David a kingdom. This is an actual land area to rule over. This Davidic covenant will find its complete fulfillment in the millennial kingdom when Jesus, a descendant of David, is ruling over God's kingdom on earth. Now, that's all the time we have for this week. That finishes up our reading. Next week, we'll talk more about David and begin to introduce David's son who will take leadership. His name is Solomon. Send any questions to BibleReadingLNBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.